Okay, everyone. As you know, the Pandavas foolishly engaged in a game of dice, and Yudhisthira lost and lost and lost. And then he and his brothers and his beautiful wife all had to be exiled for 12 years. The 12 years is not a random cycle. In um, spiritual life, you will find that things happen in 12-year cycles. It has to do with the uh, uh, astrological cycle of Jupiter. Uh, you'll, You'll find often, it was interesting for us, a lot of us at Ananda, who are part of that first generation, came just around our 24th birthday. A lot of us were exactly the same age or within a few months of each other, and it was all on our 24th birthday. And when you look over your own life, you'll often see that whether or not it happens at 24, 36, 48, 60 or not, 12-year cycles are really extremely real on the spiritual path. When I finished my first 12-year cycle from 24 to 36, it was an astounding shift of consciousness for me. I mean, oddly, not at all dramatic, but it was, it was I, I went from tilting one direction to just tilting the other direction. But it was like, whereas everything had been an uphill battle, all of a sudden it wasn't an uphill battle anymore because the, the uh, balance just shifted in a more helpful direction. It was the first time I really realized how powerful they were. Also, the first time I realized how much longer it takes than I thought it was going to take. <laughs> but so their exile for 12 years um, is symbolic of if you start on a certain cycle spiritually or materialistically, often it takes you 12 years to finish it, which is one of the reasons why it's important to grab the wave when it comes and to, and to move with the spiritual energy when it's with you because you can't really just ignore these opportunities and just calmly imagine that they'll just keep washing, coming back to you. Um, people squander all the time, tremendous opportunities and have no idea what they're squandering. Um, so it's, it's an important fact. You can be exiled for 12 years and then it's much more difficult to bring yourself back to where you were because of all that momentum, all the new karma that you've accrued. And also, and I don't mean to make this in any punitive way, but if God gives you gifts and you can turn, continually say, oh, no, thank you, you know, I'm busy doing this, it's not as if that will just be sitting there waiting for you. You have to bring yourself back to the point that you were when it was offered to you the first time. It's very interesting watching, having been now involved on the spiritual path long enough to have seen a lot of long cycles go, how many people show up again after a really long time. I read autobiography when I was 24, but for the last 25 years I've been doing something else. I don't know why. I came to Ananda and stayed a couple of months, and then I just felt like going off and doing this and doing that, and you know, now you're looking at a person who's no longer at the beginning of their life, but at the middle or even farther into it. And they don't remember why they didn't follow through in that moment. And uh, the exile of the Pandavas, he gambled with material desire. The, he gambled with the sense of I and the importance of I. And he lost. And now he has to go off. Now, of course, Yudhisthira and his brothers have the spiritual strength to hold, to hold on. There's another image from the 12 years is that sometimes the um, spiritual forces in you have to 
um, grow. They, have to, they need time to develop the strength before they can really have that confrontation um, with the other aspect of your own nature. So all of those factors are true. You can't, <clears throat> sometimes if you move too fast, sometimes moving too fast is not the fastest way to get to your goal. If you're presumptuous is actually the word I want to use. Patience is the fastest way to get somewhere. Sometimes if you're presumptuous and just want the accomplishment without the sadhana, and then you just don't build the strength. You don't have it. You just gamble everything all at once when you don't have the power, and uh, it's not going to come. the, The spiritual path is... Well, in the Gita it says, out of a thousand who seek God, only one finds God. And that's very difficult to understand when you're so full of tremendous enthusiasm. And that's not that's not the entirely not the only apt um, picture because it but it's more like out of all those people who are drawn to the spiritual path, a surprising number run out of steam before the end. I was recently talking to a friend who whose life has been he's had a lot of challenges in his life. there's no question about it, but I was saying to him he had a picture of how his life would end up, and it hasn't really ended up looking much like what he expected, except he's never stepped away from God and Guru. And I was just saying to him, you have no idea what a tremendous success your life has really been. Think how many people used to be part of the spiritual path but have walked away from it. I said, and in all that you've been through, you've never left. I mean, that's a, that's a cause for enormous satisfaction, those who are loyal to the end. Swamiji tells a story. It's in the lessons he's presently writing. He's, he's writing a series of lessons in self-realization right now. And one of them, he talks about a young man who came to Master as a monk. And he's talking about attunement and humility and service in this particular lesson. And when the monk came, ma- uh, Master told Swami to tell this young man if you persevere to the end, you'll be liberated in this lifetime. I mean, that's quite a thing to be told. But the young man was asked to do menial work, and he thought himself worthy of more. And after a a relatively short period of time, he just announced, I didn't come here to hoe weeds. And he just walked away. You know, just not having any idea of what the transforming process is really like. So this, this is a cautionary tale for Yudhisthira when he gambles and loses and then has to spend 12 years in the forest, but he never loses his spiritual focus. And even though Duryodhana takes over the kingdom, um, the, the kingdom of consciousness, Yudhisthira never gives up his claim to the throne <laughs> and in the end comes back with gr- even greater strength, as we'll see, and uh, challenges them. And, of course, wins. You know what the end of the story is, so I'm not spoiling it. Okay. Yes. Do we have a microphone? Okay. It's annoying to those who listen on tape. <laughs> Does the 13th year have as apt a significance? What, what I have written in my notes is that even after the 12 years are over, you have to spend a little more time getting your feet on the ground. I have no source for that little penciled <laughs> note here, so I have no idea where that comes from. 
So I just, when I get there, I'll say it again, but I have no idea why. (laughs) There's always transitions. You know, if you've been really exiled, it takes you a while to get back into it. That's just the way things work. If you've been through one period, it seldom completely lifts on the day that it ends, astrologically speaking. But the day that it ends is the beginning of the new cycle, sometimes astonishingly so to the day. You know, a friend of mine, I'm just going to, this is very brief and then I have to go back. He was a very, a, a, a man of our acquaintance, very successful businessman, suddenly was peripherally involved in illegal behavior. Um, uh, no, not himself personally, but an individual who was peripheral to his, his company was uh, arrested for illegal behavior. And then he, he was targeted by the government, his company. And for two years, he was uh, just plagued, you know, uh, phones were tapped, you know, all kinds of things happened to him. The government was determined that he was illegal. And, you know, he basically lost his company because of the lawsuits and the scandal and all these different things happened. It went on and on and on and on. And somewhere in the midst of that, his, uh, he's an Indian man, he talked, he found a horoscope that his grandfather had had done for him when he was born. And the horoscope said that at the age of, I think it was 38, he will be persecuted by the government and that it will, it will last for two years and it will lift on his birthday. And like two days before his birthday, out of absolutely nowhere, there was a total reversal in the court and I believe on his birthday, the whole thing stopped. I mean, just like when he was born, you just sort of think, oh, well, we might as well just be happy. Like, why worry about anything? So now we go forward. So now the Pandavas and their beautiful wife, Draupadi, are all out living now in the forest. And there's always this huge um, big deal made about being exiled. You're exiled from comfort. You're exiled from family. You're exiled from power. You just have to live simply in the forest. Of course, the noble people make a good thing of it, and you just there was a, a by nature a bit of a renunciate. So he wasn't so unhappy, you know, living among the rishis. They don't just go out into the wilderness. They go into the forest where the rishis live, and they go from ashram to ashram. But his brothers and his wife were absolutely outraged. The, the power of Yudhishthira to dictate the reality of his family, he was the eldest, he replaced the father who was past, he was the older brother, he was revered also for his spiritual greatness and his sense of dharma, but his wife had been insulted, they had lost everything, he had gambled uh, foolishly with, with the, all of their lives, and they were not happy with him. And Draupadi kept constantly telling Yudhisthira about all that she had suffered, and she would weep and weep and uh, talk about how, you know, I have no husbands, you allowed me to be insulted like this. And Bhima would talk about his fury and how he wanted to go back and fight them, and Arjuna would talk impatiently. And Yudhisthira, to all of them, would just very long-suffering silence, and when he ever spoke, all he would say is, I have given my word. I have given my word, and now that I have given my word, nothing can move me from this. And Krishna, who had been preoccupied with somebody who was invading his city when all of this took place, 
only heard about what had happened to the Pandavas afterwards. So he goes and finds them. And Draupadi, Krishna is her court of last resort, and getting no help from anywhere else, she again throws herself at the feet of Krishna and explains to Krishna about how nobody helped her and how she was humiliated, and if only he had been here, and over and over again. And you just there just has to listen to this again and again and again. And Krishna promises both to Draupadi that he will avenge what has happened to her and to the Pandavas that he will help them. But no matter how much they say anything, and we have many discussions back and forth, and these are the different ways in which the Mahabharata teaches us values, you know, even if once you have given your word, you have to keep it. It is honorable. I entered into it. No matter how foolish I may have been to enter into it, once I entered into it, it was my decision and I made it. And then you see also, and I don't know to what extent this has been exaggerated or not, but you have this constant theme which plays out in the Mahabharata of, of respect for elders and unity of family and all of that. I have to feel just a tiny bit of that has come in afterwards, but nonetheless, there it is. So he's the eldest and they must obey him, but he promises them and Krishna promises them, once this time has passed, you'll see my wrath. So, so um, Yudhisthira also plays out his characteristic, which is calmness in the face of psychological battle. So Bhima is vitality, and even Arjuna, who's self-controlled, believes in his personal power. But Yudhisthira always remains calm throughout all of this. So he gives us all the different ways we can respond. Bhima's hot-headed and wants to just fly out and do something. Yudhisthira knows that unless they behave absolutely dharmically, they will lose their power. That's the other side of it. He knows that even though it appears that they could win, that their power comes from dharma, unless they follow that dharma, they really won't have any power to succeed anyway. So Krishna advises them, and they all decide that they really need, though, to prepare for war. And Arjuna is the key to their victory. Arjuna represents the third chakra, in whichever direction the fiery self-control goes, all the other chakras all follow. So uh, Arjuna decides that he's going to go to uh, his father, Indra, and try to get some of the magic weapons of Indra, and he is going to leave them. And he leaves for quite a number of years and goes off to do tapasya to gain power. And he has a few particular adventures that play into the rest of the story that are very important. So he meets Indra, and Indra advises him to do tapasya, to propitiate the Lord Shiva above all, and to, to get a boon from Lord Shiva who will, that will give him the strength. So the other repeating theme of the Mahabharata and of all these epics, which is extremely important, is if you want something, you have to apply your consciousness to gaining the power to have it. I've often joked um, early on in the early years of Ananda when we were so incredibly impoverished, um, which we still are, but just at a higher level, as we say now. Now we go bankrupt with multiple zeros after the numbers where we used to go bankrupt, you know, for $100. Um, that people would talk about poverty consciousness and try to sort of teach us prosperity by having us not think like poor people. But I gradually realized that we didn't really have poverty consciousness. What we actually had was little rich kid consciousness which is that we could just have money for the asking. And we didn't necessarily have to work hard to earn it. We didn't necessarily have to work consistently and hard and and intelligently and creatively 
We just thought if we just wanted the money, we would have the money. And a lot of so-called prosperity thinking was actually the opposite of real prosperity thinking. What we saw for real prosperity was Swami Kriyananda, who just always was doing something new, creative, and expansive at all times. And that's where real prosperity comes from. That's when he said to me, the secret of prosperity is creativity. If this doesn't work, you try something else. And if that doesn't work, you try something else. And if that doesn't work, you try something else until eventually your unrelenting effort brings it forward. So in the Mahabharata, we have always, Arjuna needs power, so he goes and does tapasya. He does sadhana. He focuses on divine attunement. He sacrifices his comfort and his ease. He leaves his brothers, and he focuses his mind one-pointedly on the acquisition of uh, getting a boon from the divine and that divine giving him power. And he spends a lot of time um, meditating on um, Lord Shiva and propitiating him in various ways. And he's out in the forest there, and this wild boar comes by, and he decides to shoot the animal. And at the same time that he um, fires his arrow into this wild animal, another hunter who's out in the forest with his, with his consort also shoots an arrow into that. And Arjuna is quite angry at this hunter. He said, I had him in my sights. It was my arrow and he belongs to me. You had no right to shoot him. And the other hunter says, no, no, it was my arrow. And they have escalating antagonism until finally it turns into a battle because Arjuna is a kshatri and he will brook no um, insult to his honor. And then they begin to war with each other. And Arjuna, of course, is reputed to be the, the most powerful warrior on the on earth at the time, but he can make no headway against this hunter. And they fight, and they fight with one weapon after another after another, and they bring it to a climax, but he can never succeed. And finally, Arjuna um, just doesn't know what to do, so he sits down, and he makes a little shivalingam out of the soil there, and he puts a small garland on the shivalingam, and he's, he's there, and he's praying to Shiva, And when he opens his eyes, the garland is gone, and he turns around and he sees that the hunter is wearing it. And he realizes that he hasn't been fighting against an ordinary mortal at all, but that God has responded to him and tested him and been very, very pleased. So after he receives this uh, boon from Shiva, which he asks for Shiva's personal weapon, this is how it's all described in the epic that they get these specific weapons, which are, you know, mantric powers, and they're not just something you hold in your hand, but they're a power that comes into them that gives them um, the ability to influence reality itself by what we would call magic, but is really just the force of their minds and their will. So after that, he goes to the abode of Indra, which is his father's place, which is the astral world, so to speak, and he makes friends with a Gandharva there, Chitrasena, who becomes a friend of his and helps him out later. And he's living with his father now, as they say in the astral world, whatever this really means. And there is a particular apsara there. Apsaras are the beautiful uh, women dancers who live in the astral world. And this apsara is particularly, she is a consort of Indra's but she's also taken with Arjuna. Everyone is ageless there, and all relationships are different. And her name is Urvasi, and she is so taken with Arjuna that she seeks him out in the night and comes to him and offers herself to him. I am so in love with you. And Arjuna 
says, but you are the consort of Indra. You are, you know, like, my, like a mother to me. I couldn't possibly respond to your advances. And she says, you don't understand. Things are completely different here. There's nothing immoral about my desire for you. And besides that, it's not honorable when a woman offers herself to a man for him to refuse. It's an insult. And so she uh, beseeches him and then begins to demand of him. And Arjuna absolutely refuses. And Urvasi becomes so angry at him. She said, well, if you can't behave like a man, I'm going to curse you. And I'm going to take away your manhood. You will become a eunuch. And this is not a very pleasant curse to have offered. And the next day, when Indra hears about this, he smiles at his son. He says, no one, he said, not even I have been able to resist her. And he commends Arjuna on his self-mastery. But because Indra is so admiring of his son, he pleads with Urvasi, and instead of it being a curse that goes on forever, she mitigates it so he will only be a eunuch for one year of his life. And that will serve you, Indra says, during the year that you have to hide out in disguise because otherwise your power as a warrior would be so self-evident there would be no way to disguise it. So this is how the story goes. So, um, on another uh, event that happened during the period of the time of their exile, um, all of the brothers are anxious to make Draupadi's life as pleasant as they can, even though she's constantly complaining about everything because there they are, trapped because of their inability to fight. She's the kundalini energy. She's always pushing them to act, to, to have power and to move. And besides, she's just behaving like a woman. It's just part of the Mahabharata, <laughs> is that she's endlessly complaining and she wants them to be different. But she's divinely inspired by doing so. Okay. Um, so one day she's sitting in the forest and this very unusual flower is blown in her direction. It has this exquisite perfume and She's never seen this flower before. And she says to Bhima, who is always willing to do whatever she asks, can you bring me more of this wonderful flower? So Bhima goes, following the, the fragrance of the perfume, which is in the air, he follows that fragrance higher and higher and higher and higher up into the mountains, until in the distance he sees a field where many of these flowers are growing. But suddenly... His, his way is blocked because there is this, this big monkey sleeping in the road. And Bhima says, you know, I am Bhima. My wife Draupadi wants me to get this flower. The flowers are there. You must get out of my way. And uh, the monkey just says, why are you making so much noise? I'm old. I'm sleeping here. You know, it's, why bother with all of this? If you... Uh, and he says, how dare you, Bhima says, how dare you refuse to move out of the way? You know, Kshatriya is just at the drop of a hat. Rishis are cursing and Kshatriyas are always fighting. Everybody seems to have a hair-trigger temper, which is a little out of the ordinary, but that's what they're like. So Bhima, um, Bhima, no matter what he says to this monkey, the monkey refuses to get out of the way. And then Bhima starts talking about how powerful he is, that his, he's a half-brother to the great Hanuman, and even Hanuman was not more powerful than he. 
And Bhima's very, in, uh, the monkey's very interested in the story of this Hanuman. And so Bhima tells him the tale of how powerful Hanuman is and brags again about his relationship because they have the same father. They're both the, uh, the sons of Vayu, of the wind. And finally, the monkey says, well, I'm very old, but if you want me to move, why don't you just push my tail aside? So Bhima goes there and he tries to just, you know, lift the tail of the monkey aside and it doesn't move. And he pushes harder and he tries as hard as he can and he gets all the force he has and it can't move. And finally he turns and realizes this monkey is really, who is this monkey? And he bows to him and then the monkey reveals himself to be the monkey Hanuman. So the Ramayana and the Mahabharata come together in this moment and the two brothers unite and Hanuman says that he will help the Pandavas in their righteous battle. And he promises that he will um, sit on the flag. Let me just try to say this. Yes, he sits on the flag of Arjuna's chariot. And so the, on Arjuna's chariot is the symbol of a monkey. And this story tells that the symbol of the monkey was Hanuman lending his support. The symbology of it is the monkey mind, that the mind is always agitated and restless like a monkey, but Arjuna had conquered it by self-control. So he had mastery over it, and the monkey symbol flies on his chariot. The other story is that Hanuman came and sat there and helped him. Because Hanuman is one of the most delightful characters in the Ramayana and the favorite of all children, you can imagine either that the story was added or maybe it really happened because everyone always likes to talk about Hanuman the monkey. If you really want to get children interested in the, Mahabha, the Ramayana, you talk to them about Hanuman. So time passes, and Yudhisthira and his brothers are moving around with Draupadi through the forest, and they finally come and they um, camp near a particular lake. Now, meanwhile, Duryodhana is establishing himself in Hastinapur, in his capital. He's getting more and more control over the kingdom. Of course, that's what happens when spirituality is banished, goes into exile, moves away. Then you begin to establish all of your material desires. You know you decide that you're not really going to um, live in an ashram and work for devotee wages anymore. You're going to get a good job. You know you get married to a materialistic person who helps you and you get a house and you get a lot of cars and you get children and everything begins to be established, you know, really strongly and you think you're doing exactly what you should be doing until you show up here 24 years later and wonder where, where the time went. But that's what Duryodhana is doing and the people really like him. Everybody's very fond of him and they're beginning to forget about Yudhisthira and the Pandavas and can't really quite remember. I've always noticed something so interesting over the years at Ananda Village when people would come and go and be in tune for a while and then not in tune, when you lose touch with that subtle vibration of attunement, you, you don't even know that you've lost anything. It's, it's like if you have it, you know it, but if you lose it, it's too ephemeral. It's just gone. I remember a man once said he... He announced to Swami that he had a certain plan of something that he was going to do, which was really, he was really under the influence of Duryodhana. (laughs) And he said, well, if Master doesn't want me to do it, he can stop me. (laughs) And after he left, Swami turned to me and said, why would Master stop him? 
You know, why would he? That's not the prayer. If you don't want me to do this, stop me. The question is, Lord, what, would you, what do you want me to do? And you can't just sort of move out and expect God to come into your consciousness if you're not inviting him. Earlier before this recording started, some of you were here and I was talking about an experience I had with this Swami who had a certain amount of yogic power and he was describing a scene and he, he, I sort of, he took me, took my consciousness into that scene and I was actually there. It was in the Himalayas, he was talking about where he was, where he lived, and I was seeing it. It wasn't just that I was picturing it, I was actually there. And then I realized, just suddenly, this was just in a satsang, and it was just, you know, with closed eyes. There was no external impetus, but it, it, it was really happening. I realized that he had come into my mind, and he was manipulating my mind. And uh, I didn't like that. I did not ask him to come into my mind. I did not give him permission, and I immediately shut my mind to him, just closed off like that and related very differently to him after that. And uh, uh, let's see what I was thinking. Let me just, just a moment, let me find my thought. Uh, what we open our minds to is what happens to us. And if we, if we stop opening our minds to that really subtle vibration of spirit... It, the mind gets filled with whatever else is around it and we don't remember anymore. That wasn't quite what I was going to say, but I've lost the point, so I'll leave it. If it comes back, I'll say it again. Well, anyway, the Pandavas have taken up residence for a time by this particular lake. I know what I was saying about Duryodhana. Duryodhana has a certain amount of power, but he's not satisfied because material desires are never satisfied. And he decides with his brothers and with the in- encouragement of Radea and others that he wants also to have the pleasure of showing um, Yudhisthira how powerful he is and enjoying Yudhisthira's and his brother's humiliation. So they make a decision. The Pandavas are not far away. They're camping by this lake. Let's find an excuse to go show off in front of them. That's where I was thinking about people who go off to do things that are not so spiritually inspired. They'll often come back to the ashram and try to make a good impression on you. I remember once this person uh, engaged in a marriage that Swamiji advised um, them not to engage in. And one half of the couple came back after a a year or two and said, basically, see how happy we are? And Swami said to me again afterwards, it was most interesting. He said, I never said they wouldn't be happy. In fact, it was short-lived. But he said it wasn't spiritually beneficial for them. In fact, the happiness also was short-lived and it just turned into kind of a mess, but it, it, it resolved itself after a while. But still, it was the point was more just that, see, you know, you gave me a certain piece of advice, but it's working out just fine anyway. So Duryodhana had that desire to just show the, the spiritual side of things, that, you know, I didn't have to do it your way, it's working out fine for me, just like this. But he went there, and he made up this excuse that they were going out to inventory the cattle as that part of their, um, this part of working in the natural course of things. And you just there and his brothers were camped a little ways away, and Duryodhana came to the shore of this particular lake, and he wanted to put his camp there. But there was a Gandharva, as it turns out. It's Chitrasena, the friend of Arjuna from... A Gandharva is a heavenly being, a mu- musician or a dancer also, but a heavenly being. And... 
Chitrasena was there, and he refused to vacate. And Duryodhana and his uh, minions were quite outraged. Don't you understand? This is the great Duryodhana. He's a great king. He wants the space. You have to move away from him. And Chitrasena said, no. So Duryodhana decided to do battle with him. And he turned out to be a very powerful Gandharva, and he had very powerful warriors. And in fact, um, not only was he not defeated, but he defeated Duryodhana and captured him. And all of a sudden, you know, this whole thing has turned really, really bad. And so some of Duryodhana's people had to run to Yudhisthira and say, he's been captured. What should we do? And some of Yudhisthira's brothers said, good, you know, let him rot. We know why he came out here. But Yudhisthira said, I am a Kshatriya. This is my cousin. He is in trouble. It would not be honorable for me to go and help him. And so once again, over and over again in Yudhisthira's life, he refuses to take the low road. He always takes the higher position. So the Pandavas go and they, uh, they attack uh, whoever is holding Duryodhana but as soon as Chitrasena sees them in Arjuna, he just laughs and brings Duryodhana over to them. And he says, Indra sent me to teach Duryodhana a lesson. He said, I, he came here to humiliate you, and I was not going to allow that to happen. So now Duryodhana um, owes his life and his freedom to Yudhisthira. And even still, you know, his brothers are saying, keep him imprisoned. And Yudhisthira says, no. He said he was captured and we have rescued him, and now we have to let him go back. And then Yudhishthira tries to say, you know, to Duryodhana, don't do this. Tries to give him good advice. But the materialistic mind um, doesn't listen if it doesn't want to listen. It just becomes angry when advice is given to it that it doesn't really want. And in fact, actually, Duryodhana, uh, Duryodhana becomes hum- so humiliated by this experience that he goes off and he sits down and he resolves to fast until death. He says his honor has been so compromised by this, by having now he owes his life to the Pandava brothers, that he's going to fast until death. And everyone pleads with him um, to just put this behind you and go forward, but Duryodhana refuses. And then Sakuni, who's very, very crafty, says, well, if you're truly that penitent, if you feel that badly about it, why don't you just make peace with the Pandavas? Because he knows that that'll just make Duryodhana angry. And so Duryodhana sits there and contemplates that, but gradually he, all the f- sense of humiliation is replaced by the sense of anger that Sakuni has planted in his mind, and he becomes powerful again and just forgets that little impulse. You know, every so often, even the materialistic mind has this moment of higher thinking, but it rarely has the force to hold on to it. And that's why you see sometimes people who have very wrong and strong worldly habits, um, every so often they go through this period of time when they imagine that they're going to change things, but usually it wears off. You know, it's sincere while it lasts, but it's usually just a flash in the pan. So now they're out in the forest. And one of the Brahmins 
comes and asks for their help and says, you know, a deer seems to have run off with one of my tools that I need for my ceremonies. And they decide, and he asks for their help to get it back. So the Pandavas set out, but they're unable to find either the deer or the, what they're looking for. And they get very deep into the forest and they become very tired and very thirsty. So they all just sit and wait for a moment. And Yudhishthira asks the youngest brother to climb up into a tree and look. And he sees not very far away a lake. So Yudhishthira asks him, please go and draw water and bring water back to us. So the youngest brother goes, uh, Nakula goes to the water. And as he's standing at the edge of the water, a voice seemingly coming out of nowhere says, um, don't drink of that water before you answer my questions. And Nakul is just overcome with thirst, and he doesn't understand why he should be ordered about by this creature. And so he drinks of the water, and as soon as he drinks of the water, he falls down dead. Great tragedy striking the Pandavas out in the forest. So meanwhile, the other brothers are waiting, and Nakula doesn't return. So Yudhishthira says to Sahadev, go and see what's happened to your brother. So Sahadev goes and he comes to the lake and he sees his brother lying dead by the water, but he's just overcome by this terrible thirst. And once again, the voice says, you know, you see the fate of your brother. You must answer my questions before you drink of this water. Sahadev disregards it, drinks of the water, and falls down dead. Arjuna goes meets the same fate. Bhima goes and meets the same fate. And finally, Yudhishthira comes. And he um, sees his brothers lying there. He hears the terrible, feels the terrible thirst. And the voice speaks to him again and says, um, you know, you must answer my questions. And Yudhishthira says, you know, what kind of a powerful creature are you? These are the four greatest warriors in the world and they're all stricken dead. Who can you be and what can you have done? And then all of a sudden this uh, uh, gruesome monster, Yaksha they call him, appears. And Yudhishthira just uh, is overwhelmed. What kind of a creature are you that could kill my brothers? And he says, I want to ask you some questions. So Yudhishthira responds by, accepting the challenge. And then a whole series of questions is asked, which is a whole section of the Mahabharata, in which there are very subtle questions about right and wrong and dharma and righteousness. And every single question that's asked, Yudhishthira gives a, an answer for the ages. And finally, this, this fearsome creature asks him, what is the most astonishing feature about human life? And Yudhishthira answers, oh, he says that all around us, we see everyone marching off into the abode of death, and yet we believe it will never happen to us. At which point, the, the yaksha says, I am so pleased with your answers. I offer you a boon. He says, I will give you back the life of one of your brothers. And so he asks for Nakula. And the creature says, Nakula... Arjuna is the greatest warrior of all time. You rely, Abhima is your favorite. You're relying upon these for your future victory. Why do you ask for Nakula? And Yudhishthira says, I am the son of Kunti. So Kunti has one living son. Nakula is the son of Madri, and she has no living sons. 
And so the creature is so impressed by Yudhishthira's complete commitment to Dharma without regard for his personal need or his personal preferences in any situation that suddenly he re- the creature reveals himself and he is none other than the god of Dharma, who is also the god of death, who is Yudhishthira's own father. This was the mantra, this was the god that was invoked when Kunti gave birth to him And he said, I have heard from everyone about your wisdom and your righteousness, and now I have seen it for myself. And so he gives back to him the life of all the sons, all his brothers, and they all come to life again. And then he says to Yudhishthira, I offer you one more boon. What would you like? And, you know, all through, Arjuna is trying to get Shiva's weapon. He's trying to get Indra's weapon. Everybody's trying to get strong for the war. And Yudhisthira, faced with the opportunity to have anything he wants, asked to overcome his deadly enemies, and he lists them, lust, anger, avarice, arrogance, envy. And the Lord of Dharma says, you've already mastered all of these. There's nothing more I can give you. And the lesson here, of course, is the most powerful weapons of war against the king of material desire is to master those qualities in yourself. And then you have all the power that you need to defeat your enemies. So now the 13th year has come. And they have successfully managed to live these 12 years in exile without too much hardship. And in fact, they've gotten stronger. They've gotten the assistance of Hanuman to help them. Arjuna has gained the power from Shiva and also from his father. He has this curse from Urvasi, but now it's the 13th year. And so they have to decide where they're going to spend that year. So they review the various kingdoms where they could go because they need someone, a, a righteous place to live, a place in which large enough that they can all disappear into the kingdom and find a way to live for these 13 years. So each of the brothers begins to make a choice about what they will do. And they decide that King Virata is the place they're going to go. And his name actually means samadhi. So they go into cosmic consciousness for the last year, and that's how they hide from material desire. He can't find them because they're in a state of consciousness where the he, he can't go to search them out. So each of them has to have a disguise. Yudhisthira decides that he will go to King Virata, and he will say that he was a counselor um, to King Yudhisthira during the 12 years of exile. But now that Yudhisthira has gone into hiding... He has no place to be. And he says, I was so close. He says, I will tell the king that I was so close to Yudhishthira that he never did anything without my knowing it. Okay. Bhima decides, Bhima, of course, is the man of fearsome appetite. And he decides that he he has become an expert cook because of his own affection for eating. And he will go into the kingdom and he will offer himself as a cook and he will offer to prepare the most wonderful dishes and make himself invaluable to the king. And also because he's so powerful, he he will offer to be a wrestler and he will train all their young men in the gymnasium. Then Arjuna is faced with this year that he has to live as a eunuch. And also when he was in Indra's court, Chitrasena had trained him in music and dance. So he says he will go and offer him and he will offer to teach the women of the household music and dance. You know, and he will disguise himself as a woman. He will wear his hair long. He will wear a cloth across his upper body. In India, you sometimes see these uh, 
men who dress like women and act like women. It's a kind of a group. I don't know if it was there then or not. Nakula has a gift for working with horses. Sahadev has a gift for working with the cows, and they all agree one by one that they will go in. And Draupadi, and they can hardly, the men can hardly bear this, but she will go also and she will find the queen. And she will say, you know, I was an attendant to Draupadi. I used to fix her hair every day. I can do anything with flowers and with jewels, and I will make you and the women of your court beautiful. So one by one they slip into Virata's kingdom and each of them has their disguise and each of them is taken in exactly um, where they're meant to be. When Draupadi enters the city all by herself, she's so beautiful she immediately attracts the attention of the, the people there and the queen sees her and calls her to her. And Draupadi says that she has... She tells the queen, she says, I was a handmaiden to Draupadi, and now that she is in hiding, I have no place to be, the same as Yudhishthira had said. She said, but I have five Gandharva husbands, she said, but they are cursed, and they have to leave me alone for a year, so I want to live with you for just one year. The queen sees, though, and senses this, not, sees not only her beauty, but senses her enormous power, and says to her, but you are so beautiful. If my husband, the king, sees you, I am afraid he will fall in love with you. And Draupadi says, no, no fear, you know, my queen. I will never leave your apartments, and I will always hide from his view. And if you will just take care of me, allow me to take refuge here for this one year, then I will make sure that nothing happens. So the queen agrees, and they all begin to make their way there. And of course, because the presence of the Pandavas are there, Virata's kingdom begins to flourish. And Yudhisthira becomes, Virata becomes very attached to Yudhisthira and he gives him good advice and they uh, play chess together and they're always as they are and the cows and horses flourish and the queen is very beautiful because when spirituality enters, then the kingdom begins to flourish. So 11 months go by in this way. So the 13th year is moving along and they're all just waiting. And the power of Virata's kingdom is to a certain extent because of the power of his brother-in-law and his name is Kichaka. And Kichaka is considered to be one of the four strongest men in the world. Bhima is one of them, Balarama is another, Kichaka is the third and then there's a fourth who's not a character in the story as far as we're concerned. And One of the reasons Virata's kingdom is so powerful and safe is because Kichaka, as the commander of the army, keeps it that way. And he's always expanding the power. So to a certain extent, Virata actually owes his kingdom to his brother-in-law because the commander-in-chief of the army is the one who really makes it strong. Dhritarashtra depended on Pandu. Pandu was a, a good warrior also and a good fighter, and the kingdom, when it came back to Dhritarashtra, was much stronger because Pandu had been the warrior, which is one of the reasons Dhritarashtra owed Pandu's children, the Pandavas. What he did was because he really owed his kingdom to his brother. But Kichaka has been out on a campaign for all these 11 months. And then he returns, and when he returns, he comes to see his sister, and because it's a brother and a sister, he comes into her apartments. And as it happens, Draupadi is 
sitting in a garden there, and he sees her. She is kept out of sight of all the men of the kingdom this whole time, but because he came into his sister's private quarters, he saw her, and he immediately has a desire for her. He falls in love with her. And he speaks to her there. He says, you know, you're such a beautiful woman. Why don't you come to my apartments? You shouldn't be here as a maid servant in my sister's apartments. You should be a queen in your own right. And she says, you know, please, sir, leave me alone. This is an improper advance. And he's insulted by that. I am the most powerful man in the kingdom, he says. Even the king himself will not dare to defy me, and I have invited you to come into my, uh, to my apartment, and you, how dare you refuse me? And she says, please. She said, my five Gandharva husbands will be very angry. You must leave me in peace. And he says, what am I afraid of anyone? He's one of the four most powerful men in the world. He's not afraid at all. So... Time passes, and he becomes obsessed with her. And he begins to harass his sister, because his sister has promised, the queen has promised to keep Draupadi there, but now her brother is really intent, you know, on on having her for himself. And she tries to remind him of the Gandharva husbands, and she has a very bad feeling about this, but he, he absolutely won't listen. And finally, the queen gives in. And Draupadi tries, and she says, she makes up an errand. She says, my brother has some special wine in his apartments here. Take this bowl and have it filled. And Draupadi knows exactly what's going on. And she says to the queen, please don't do this. Your brother's intentions against me are entirely dishonorable. You know that I have five husbands. Now, the queen is not used to being contradicted by her maid, And suddenly she becomes very angry and absolutely insists that she go. So when Draupadi arrives at Kichaka's apartments, you know, he immediately is not at all interested in filling the wine bowl and he makes improper advances toward her. And she becomes very angry. Draupadi becomes very angry and he becomes more aggressive. And she tries to run away, but he catches her by her hair and he knocks her down and he tries to overpower her. But she escapes from him and she runs into the king's chamber, into the, the court where it's holding session because she knows Yudhishthira will be there. Here she is. She's the wife of uh, a great king and she's, this man is trying to take advantage of her. And Bhima is also there. And Draupadi appeals to the king you know, he's making improper advances. You, you must protect me. But the king, Virati, even though he's an honorable man, he's also afraid of his brother-in-law. Not only does he owe him the kingdom, but he, Virata knows that Kichaka could just attack him easily. And besides, this is just a maidservant. He doesn't understand why he should be protect, so protective of this maidservant. If his commander-in-chief wants the woman, then it's really none of his affair. So Virata tries to get out of it by saying, well, no one else was there. We just have your word against his. Because also, why would she resist him? He's the most powerful and wealthy man in the kingdom, and she's just a maidservant. This certainly looks to him like an upgrade for her, and he doesn't understand. Now, Bhima is becoming so angry that he starts to uproot a tree. This is how they always describe it. (laughs) And they are very close to the end of the 13 years, but if they're discovered, 
then they have to go back for 12 more years of exile and another year of hiding. So Yudhisthira, without revealing anything, says, don't try to burn green wood. You know, the time is not right to set the fire. So with great um, self-control, Bhima manages not to respond in the moment. But Draupadi is extremely angry. And she just simply says, as insultingly as she can, my eldest husband is a dice addict, and therefore all my husbands behave like cowards, she says. She never minces words. So she leaves. But late that night, she simply can't bear it anymore. Now, all five of them have been living there without ever revealing their relationship to each other. But she sneaks out that night, and she goes to Bhima's chamber because she knows he's the one who's going to help her. Arjuna is a eunuch at the present moment. Yudhishthira has already expressed himself, so she goes to Bhima. She knows he has got the heart feeling, and he's the one who's going to help her. So she just weeps and wails and tells him how, and reiterates all of the insults and all of the difficulties that she had, and this is the final unbearable thing, and she simply cannot stand it anymore. So Bhima promises to help her. So they come up with the plan. The next day, Kichaka comes to her and says, see, you go to the king and even the king won't help you. You know, I am the most powerful person here and I want you to come to me and no one will protect you. And according to the plan that she's made with Bhima, she plays it very coy. And she says, oh, she said, I had to play it out like that because my five husbands are very, very powerful. So now everyone knows that I have refused to go with you So meet me tonight at midnight. And then she describes the trysting place, which is the dancing hall, which is at the edge of the court, where no one ever goes in the night. And she promises, I'll be there at midnight. Kichaka can hardly wait for the day to end. He just waits all, you know, he's so excited. And he perfumes himself and he dresses in his finest silks. And all he can think about is this woman. So she sends word to Bhima. And when the midnight hour comes... Bhima comes first, and he wraps himself in the kind of silken garment that a woman was wear. And there's a, a couch there, and he crawls under the couch and pulls the covers up over, and the queen stands behind a pillar. And so Kichaka is nearly drunk with his uh, lust and passion, and he's going to crawls into the bed, but as soon as he touches her, the body he touches does not feel anything like the body he expects to feel. And Bhima just rises up. And then the two of them have a battle. And it's, Kichaka is very strong, and, and, but he was taken by surprise. He was not prepared for a battle. His mind is weakened by his desire, and eventually Bhima succeeds. But Bhima's rage at all that he's had to hold in all that time knows no bounds. And so he not only kills him, he stomps him to pieces and leaves a nearly unrecognizable lump just on the ground there. (laughs) He says, the woman you have fallen in love with is death itself, and I am here to greet you. So, and then Draupadi calls the guards and says, see what happens to those who dare to insult me. You know, the kundalini power does not cower in front of anyone. She doesn't shrink back. She proclaims it. And the queen is horrified because this is her brother. And, Draupadi, and he want, she wants Draupadi out of her court immediately. And Draupadi says, 
I need to stay here for 13 more days. And everybody's too terrified to force her to leave. And so she's able to stay in the court. Okay, let's take a short break. Does anyone have any... Go ahead and start it, John. Does anyone have any questions that uh, need to be answered before we go forward? Okay. So now, you know, the, the Duryodhana and the rest of the Kauravas know that the thir- they've been keeping track. They know that somewhere the Pandavas are hidden in this 13th year, and they have not been passive during these months, but they've sent spies out in all directions trying to find where the Pandavas are, because if they can discover them, then they can send them off into exile for another 12 years, and then we can just put off this whole confrontation, and they won't have to deal with it. But they all come back without having been able successfully to find them because, of course, they're hiding in samadhi and they can't be seen by material desire. So the only odd story is of Kichaka's death, which is a little unusual because there are only three people on the, in the world that they believe are strong enough to kill him. And he was not only killed, but he was smashed to bits. And also they feel that wherever the Pandavas are, that kingdom is going to be flourishing. And uh, they decide that Virata's kingdom must be the place where they're hidden. So they decide that they're going to invade that kingdom. And if they try to make war with that king, the Pandavas will feel obligated to come out and help if they're there. And they believe, they now believe that they're there. So they decide that they're going... Um, to attack the city from two sides. They're going to go in on one side and they're going first just attack and then on the other side they're going to steal all the cattle and take the cattle away. Cattle always represents um, the wealth. So the attack comes and Yudhishthira says that he used to be a good warrior and he offers to go with Virata to help. And so Virata and all his army go out and they meet the Kauravas and uh, they begin to... uh, Let me just look just a second. Okay, and while they're out, while they're out doing battle on that one side, then the city is attacked from the other side. But when the city is attacked from the other side, there's nobody left in the palace to go and help them. Now, Arjuna has been this whole time He's been the dancing instructor for the princess in the house. Um, and he's, you know, she's a young girl, and he's become very attached to her. And, the, and her brother, who's also you know, relatively young, is the only one left when the attack comes from the other side. And so the young boy says, well, there's no one here. I can go out, and I can fight, and I can win. And... The Arjuna says to the daughter, to the princess, he says, well, tell your brother that I um, am very good as a charioteer and I will be able to... Uh, uh, a second. For, just a, for some reason, I can't keep this story straight. Let me just get it straight in my mind. Okay. All right. There we have it. So the princess tells her brother, well, you can go out and be a hero, and Brinhala is what she's called herself, and she can be your charioteer. They refer to a eunuch as a feminine. And at first he doesn't want this to happen because having a woman for a charioteer is not really what a hero does, but finally 
he doesn't know what to do, and the queen insists that if he's going to battle, he must have this woman drive him. So she comes out, Brynhala, and her hair is down, and she's driving the chariot, and she drives the prince out toward where the warriors are. But as soon as he actually sees the battle, he becomes very frightened because he's really just a young man, and he's never been in battle before, and he actually runs away. He jumps out of the chariot and runs away. And Brynhala just can't let him disgrace himself like this, so he drops the reins and runs after him and grabs him and brings him back. Now, then he says, he gives uh, Arjuna in this form, not yet revealing his identity, gives this prince a good, strong talking to him. And he says, look, he says, the prince says, I, um, I know where the Pandavas have hidden their weapons. Because when the Pandavas first went into Virata's kingdom, they decided they couldn't go in with all of their powerful weapons because if they had those weapons, the weapons themselves would attract so much attention that they would immediately be found out. So on their way into town, they decided they saw this tall tree and they needed to put their weapons somewhere where no one would touch them. So they found the hide of a dead animal and they wrapped their weapons in that and then they strung them high in the tree. And some of the villagers who saw them doing it, they said that this was the body of their dead grandmother and that according to their tradition, it had to hang in the tree. But if anyone touched it, they would be cursed and they would die. So the villagers told everyone and they just would see this thing up there, but they never came anywhere near it. So Brinhala goes with the prince now and he goes to where those weapons are and he pulls them down from the tree and they say that Arjuna wept at the sight of his beautiful weapons there. And then he tells the prince who he actually is, that he is by not this dancing instructor at all, but he's Arjuna and that all the Pandavas have been hiding in the kingdom this whole time. The prince is overwhelmed and excited and now he realizes that driving his chariot is no, no uh, eunuch dancing instructor, but Arjuna himself. And he's overwhelmed and he begs Arjuna to forgive him and his family for any offenses that they might have offered to the Pandavas over this whole period of time. So now the prince is there and Arjuna is there with his weapons and he comes back out onto the field there and Duryodhana's, um, the elders have come with Duryodhana. They're leading the, the army. They're cooperating with Duryodhana because that's their position to do so. Bhishma's there, Drona is there, and Kripa, who's another one of the elders. So Arjuna takes two arrows and he shoots them at the foot of Bhishma and then he shoots two arrows at the feet of Drona, two arrows at the feet of Kripa. And Bhishma immediately recognizes Arjuna and realizes that indeed the Pandavas are there as expected. And so Arjuna is asking his permission to fight with them. And then Arjuna shoots two more arrows at each man and it whizzed by each of their ears. And the elders are just thrilled to see Arjuna again and very impressed by both his graciousness and his prowess. So they go into um, battle, and Arjuna battles with all the great heroes and defeats them all. And before they left, the princess said to Brinhala, oh, bring me back, you know, silk and jewels from the enemy when you defeat them. So finally Arjuna has done enough of fighting, and he issues a mantra which makes everybody on the field of battle, all the enemies go unconscious. So while they're unconscious, 
Arjuna and the prince go and they gather up their silks and their jewels to take back to the princess. And then when they come back into consciousness again, Duryodhana is still really angry and wants to fight. And Bhishma says, you've been humiliated and defeated. They took your jewels and took your silks. Just go home. There's nothing you can do now. And Duryodhana realizes he's really impotent against this spiritual power because material desire can be defeated by self-control. And in fact, all the so-called riches that material desire accumulates, you know, they can all just be stripped away by self-control. Material desire can't hold on to anything. He, he defines his success by what he has externally. Arjuna just can take all that away and still be triumphant. Okay. So just as Duryodhana is leaving, Arjuna shoots one more arrow hits Duryodhana's crown and knocks it to the floor, knocks it to the ground. So then Arjuna goes back, wraps up the weapons again, hoists them up into the tree, resumes his, his persona as the dancing teacher, and then they go back to the, to the town. Now, when the king comes in from his side of battle where he has also been successful and he finds out that the, the army had come from the other side and his young son had gone off to fight. And then he hears that the dancing teacher was his charioteer. He becomes quite alarmed. But then Yudhishthira, who's still in disguise, hasn't given, you know, Arjuna has told the prince, but he, he, he swore the prince to secrecy. He said, you mustn't tell your father who we are. We have to reveal in our own way. So... Um, when Yudhishthira hears that Brinhala has been the prince's charioteer, he begins to tell the king, oh, no worry, I understand she's a great warrior. And then the king hears that it's been a great victory, and he's so proud of his son. But every time he says something that his son says, Yudhishthira adds, well, of course, because Brinhala was his charioteer. And with her, there was no possibility of defeat. And finally, the king becomes so angry at Yudhishthira constantly putting down his son that he throws the dice at, at Yudhishthira and he cuts him like this. And as it happens, Draupadi is there and she rushes over to Yudhishthira and, and puts a golden bowl underneath so that his blood will fall into the bowl. And the king says, what are you doing? What does that matter? And she just looks at him and says, you have no idea. If his blood falls onto this ground, for every drop of blood, there will be a year of famine. And so she protects him like this. Now, Yudhishthira has a, a serious injury on his head. So he sends word, he says to the um, prince, he sends word and says, you know, make sure that um, when Brinhala and the prince come back, that the prince comes in alone and that Brinhala doesn't come with him. Because Yudhishthira fears that if Arjuna sees that he has been attacked, that Arjuna will lose his self-control and will not be able to resist that. So the prince returns, and the prince is very agitated. He really doesn't know how to deal with this because now he's in possession of a secret, and his father starts praising him. And so the prince says, well, that there was a heavenly being that helped me, a powerful heavenly being that helped me. And the king says, well, show me who he is. Tell me who he is. I want to honor him. He said, I'm so grateful to him. I want to give your sister 
in, as his bride, you know, such a powerful warrior who helped us. I want to make him part of my family and I'll give the princess, my own daughter, to him as a bride. And um, then Brynhala comes in and Yudhisthira keeps his eyes averted the whole time and Arjuna is very anxious to sort of share the joke with Yudhisthira, but Yudhisthira will never look at him because he's hiding what's happened to him because he's afraid of his anger. So the next, that night, they all get together and then it's obvious that Yudhisthira has been injured and it comes out that the king has actually injured him. But they agree that they will not take any revenge upon him. They will give him a chance to redeem himself. So they realize now Duryodhana knows where there is. They are. There's no reason for them to be in hiding anymore. So the next day, they take silks and jewels from all over the palace and all five of the Pandavas with Draupadi are all sitting and they go into the king's uh, court before the king arrives and Yudhishthira sits on the throne and the others sit all around them and Virata comes in, King Virata, and he sees that he's on his throne. What are you doing there? And then they tell him who they are and he begs forgiveness for his injury and for anything he might have said wrong. And the prince is so relieved to be able to finally say who Arjuna is and Virata treats them with great honor and um, is so grateful that they've been in his kingdom all this time. So he says to Arjuna, you know, I promised my daughter to you because you are the great hero that saved my kingdom. Arjuna says, she's been like a daughter to me all this time when I have been her dancing master, he said, I couldn't possibly marry her, but I will accept her as the bride for my son. And so that's very satisfactory to everyone. Now the word goes back to Duryodhana. And Duryodhana sends word. He says, well, you've come out before the 13 years are gone. And they said, no, check with the astrologers, ask Bhishma. In fact, the calendar was such that they gained a little bit of time every year. And in fact, it had expired and that it was deemed right. So there's a great celebration that happens. Arjuna's son, Abhimanyu, I believe, comes. And there's a great, great wedding celebrated and all the kings come. And everybody is thrilled. Except that they all know that there's going to be war. So... Krishna comes and they hold a great council. And they decide that even though war may be inevitable, some effort must be made to negotiate before they go straight to war. At the same time, though, all the forces are beginning to gather on, go, on, on both sides. So a Brahmin from their court is sent to Duryodhana to demand a return of the kingdom, otherwise they're going to be war. Return of half the kingdom, that's all they're asking for, just what they had. And in the meantime, everybody's getting ready, and Krishna goes back to Dwarka where he lives, and then Arjuna realizes he must rush there and ask our, uh, Krishna to support him because who, the, the code of honor was whoever asks you to support first, you at least have to seriously consider their offer. So Arjuna runs to Dwarka to see Krishna. Duryodhana hears he's going, and he also rushes there, and they... Uh, Duryodhana gets there just before Arjuna. And it's, oh dear, what's going to happen here? But as it happens, Krishna is asleep when they both arrive. 
So Duryodhana, because he came there first, walks in first, and he goes and sits on the chair by the head of the bed where Krishna is sleeping. Arjuna, as soon as he sees Krishna, is so filled with reverence that he takes a seat at the Lord's feet. And he just sits there in reverent admiration of of the Lord while the Lord continues to sleep. So Krishna wakes up, and because Arjuna is at the foot of his bed, when he opens his eyes, he sees Arjuna first. And then when he turns his head, he realizes that Duryodhana is also sitting next to him. And he says, my cousins, because they're both his cousins, what may I do for you? And they say, although Krishna knows, we believe there's going to be war and we've come to ask you to support us. And Duryodhana says, I arrived first, and by right my request should be honored first. And Krishna says, well, that may be true, but I was asleep, so I don't know who arrived first, but the first one I saw was Krishna. And he says, besides, he says there's a tradition um, that the younger always gets to get his request in first. And Arjuna is younger than Duryodhana. Duryodhana is the contemporary of Bhima. But he said, here's what I'm going to offer you. He said, I'm going to give you two choices. He said, my army, my men, my cattle, my, uh, my horses, my elephants, all the implements of war, my soldiers are invincible, and I will offer my entire army to support your cause. That's one side. And on the other side, it will be only me. And I will not pick up a weapon, and I will not fight. And then he says, as the youngest, Arjuna, you can choose first. And Arjuna says, Lord, I choose you. Duryodhana is overjoyed. He thinks that Arjuna has made the stupidest possible choice. And so he goes off very satisfied because he has all of Krishna's army And Arjuna knows wherever the Lord is present, there shall be victory. And he knows he's made the best choice. And Krishna chides him a little bit um, for making that choice. But Arjuna knows, and Krishna knows, that their victory is now assured. So several messengers go back and forth between um, Duryodhana and Yudhishthira, but it looks obvious that it's, it's not going to resolve itself. Finally, Yudhishthira sends the word. He said, look, I'm not going to ask for half the kingdom. I'll be satisfied with five villages. And then he names five villages that he wants. And that message goes in. And the five villages he asked for, the one village where the house, uh, the burning house was situated, the, the place that was, the, the barren place that was given to them as half of their kingdom. He asks, um, for the place where the dice hall was built. And then he asked for the place where Bhima was poisoned. He names four villages, and then he said, you can name the fifth village. And of course, by just naming those cities, he's also listing out the grievances that Duryodhana and the outrages that Duryodhana has perpetrated on him. But Duryodhana absolutely will hear of it, and hear, not hear of it at all. And he declares, I will not give you Dishthira so much land as is covered by the points of five needles. And the word goes back to you, Dishthira. Now, definitely, there's going to be war. But Krishna says, I must make an effort. He said, I know this effort will be absolutely futile, but I need, people need to know that Krishna tried, that I made this effort. So 
Duryodhana has this thought first. Dhritarashtra has this thought first. The blind mind believes, I'll buy the favor of the Lord. I'll give him gifts. I'll give him money. I'll give him adulation. I'll give him jewels. And Duryodhana just laughs at that. He knows that Krishna can't be bought like that. But Dhritarashtra is so afraid. He's afraid. He's, he knows that he's been blinded by his attachment to his son, but he also knows Krishna has power and he's just so confused he doesn't know what to do. Duryodhana comes up with his plan is that he's going to capture Krishna and hold him a prisoner. But he decides to welcome Krishna in this lavish way and he prepares a palace, he prepares food, he prepares a greeting. And when Krishna comes, he won't have anything to do with Duryodhana's palace. He says, I, there is no righteousness in your house and I will not enter it. And he goes to stay with Vidura. Duryodhana is extremely upset, but he just, Krishna will have none of it. And he stays with um, Vidura, and the two of them talk about the disaster that's about to ensue. That Krishna was born for this. Um, Duryodhana has played right into it that the house of the Koravas is doomed and the Pandavas will certainly survive. But Vidura has been Krishna's, uh, Dhritarashtra's companion through all these years, and so he stays. Krishna goes to the elders and he says to them, to Dhritarashtra and the others, he says, you must bind up Duryodhana and Karna and his brother and Sakuni and turn them over to Yudhishthira. Just make prisoners of them and give them to Yudhishthira. He says, that's our only hope. And they try again to persuade Duryodhana, but he will have none of it. And before they can capture Duryodhana according, I mean, Krishna according to Duryodhana's foolish plan, he expands his consciousness and his form out into the infinite. And Dhritarashtra, who's never been able to see, because he's been blind since birth, sees the divine form of the Lord. And, but after that, he says, make me blind again. I don't want to see. I don't want to see what's coming. Now, Krishna's leaving War is absolute certainty. Even the Lord himself cannot bring peace. There's also obvious lessons in this that even the Lord himself cannot reconcile. He can't make peace between the material desire and dharma and spirituality. He can try, but Duryodhana is unalterably opposed. And so war is inevitable, and that's the symbology of Krishna going and trying to make this happen. And Duryodhana imagining that he can capture the Lord and hold him a prisoner and still have his own way and that Krishna just making that impossible so on the way out Krishna stops and visits Kunti the mother of the Pandavas who's living there in that court and he tells her that war is coming that the Pandavas will prevail but it will be great sorrow for everyone and she understands And then he says to her, as the mother of a kshatriya, you give birth to sons so that they can fight and die. That is what your duty is. But before he leaves, after visiting Kunta, he goes to Radeya, to Karna, who is the great, powerful hero who has dedicated himself to Duryodhana in return because Duryodhana gave him friendship when no one else would. And he continues to cling to this thought that it's going to work out, that he's powerful enough. So Krishna takes him into his chariot and they drive off to a solitary place where no one else is there and Krishna speaks to him. He says, Krishna says to Radei, I know you to be an honorable man. 
He said, you're not an evil man, you're an honorable man, and yet you have allied yourself with Duryodhana. Why have you done that? He says, when no one else would accept me, when everyone scorned me and cursed me for my unfortunate birth, this man made me his friend. And for that, he said, I have loyally supported him. I have a debt to repay to him, and I have promised him. He said, two people in my life have loved me. The mother who raised me, Radea, and Duryodhana. And no one in my life has loved me except the two of them, and I will give my life for both of them. Then Krishna says, who is your mother? And Radei says, my, uh, my mother Radha tells me that I must have been the child of a high-born princess who loved her reputation more than she loved me because she wrapped me in silk and put me in a carved box and put me on the river, he said. But I have a wonderful mother in the woman who raised me. And then Krishna says to him, did you know that your mother is in fact a princess and that she has five other powerful sons, in fact, the greatest heroes in the whole world. He realizes that Krishna is telling him for the first time, someone is telling him that Kunti is his mother and that his brothers are the Pandavas. And then he says, who is my father? And Krishna says, the Surya. By the power of the mantra, Surya was your father. Radehi realizes that his Ishtadeva, the one he's been worshipping all this time, is the god Surya, who is his own father. And then Krishna goes on to remind Radehi of what he knows, that if a woman has a, a child before she is married, that child becomes the legitimate child of the man that she marries. And so, not only is he one of the Pandavas by right, but he's the eldest of the Pandavas. He's older even than Yudhishthira, and by right, the whole, the whole kingdom belongs to him. And Krishna says, you know, if you go to Yudhishthira and tell him who you are, and Kunti will confirm who you are, he will turn the whole kingdom over to you. And the beautiful Draupadi will be your wife, just as she is the wife of all the brothers. Karna says, he said, by law, I may be a Pandava, I may be the son of Kunti, but that woman turned her back on me. He says, I was raised by Radha and she is all the mother I need. She said, even though I would have wealth and position, I would have to turn my back on Duryodhana. The Pandava scorned me and Duryodhana accepted me. He said, I can't turn my back on the one who has loved me now for the sake of my own welfare. And then he says to Krishna, oh, you're so clever, he says. He said, my one joy was the thought that I was going to battle Arjuna and defeat him. And now by telling me that he's my own brother, you've taken the heart out of me. He said, out of your love for Arjuna, you've made it impossible for me even to enjoy that victory if that victory comes to me. He said, but I will fight and I will die and I will sacrifice my life because that is my fate and my duty. He says to Krishna, I'm tired of this life anyway and I'm ready to die. So, Kunti hears from Vidura, 
all the terrible things that are going to come because Krishna has told Vidura everything about this terrible war. And she decides to make one last desperate effort. So she knows that Radeya, every noon, does his worship of Surya, and afterwards, whatever boons are asked of him, he will do. So he, she goes to where Radeya is doing his worship of the sun, and she waits behind him, and the way it's described, the sun is beating down on her, and she takes a piece of his garment and covers herself from the sun. And so then when he finishes his worship, he turns around and he sees her there. And he says, those who come now come to ask me for a boon. You know, who are you? What may I do for you? And then he looks at her and he says, you seem strangely familiar to me. Have I met you before? And then he recognizes her as that um, cloth-covered figure that used to come to her when he was young. Remember, he told his mother about he would have this dream during his childhood and this woman would come and he could not quite see who she was and she was dressed in fine garments and she would weep and her tears would fall on him. And he would say, who are you? Why are you here? But she would never answer him. And then as he grew older, she stopped coming. And he decided that she must have been the young woman who gave birth to him. But as she grew and had other children, she withdrew from him and he hadn't seen her. And then when he tells about that dream, he tells Kunti about that dream and that she looks like that woman, Kunti begins to weep and she says, in fact, I am your mother. And Karna says, I know. Because Krishna's already told him and he, and he also knows who she is. He said, I know who you are and I know why you've come except after all these years I am meeting my mother and I just want to enjoy. And so they sit together. And he puts his head in her lap and she strokes her hair, his hair. And mother is with her son, son is with the mother. And he says, you know, all the anger and the bitterness I had in my heart towards you, now that you're here I can have none of it. And they say they sat together for minutes or hours. And then he says, why have you come? And she says, you are my eldest son. The throne and the kingdom and the crown belong to you. The boon I ask of you is that you accept it. She says, he says, I cannot. She says, I am your mother. I am asking you. And it's a very grave thing to not do what your mother asks. I am asking you. He says, I cannot. But then, as she's leaving, when she really realizes he's not going to say yes to her, and she's weeping as she leaves, he says, I will grant you a boon. He said, I will spare all of your sons except Arjuna. He said, I could conquer them all, but I will only conquer Arjuna. And either Arjuna will die or I will die. But at the end of the war, you will still be the mother of five sons. That's it for tonight. <laughs>